continue that this morning in Revelation chapter 13. I would invite you to return there with us this morning. Last Lord's Day, we, we took a break from Revelation in order to, as we were coming to the Lord's table, we, we thought a little bit more in depth about what the Lord's table is and how it's intended by Christ to, to benefit our souls uh, day in and day out. And I pray that it's been a blessing to you even this week as we've sought to apply that to our lives. But this morning, we return back to Revelation chapter 13, and our text this morning is verses 11 through 18. So we're picking up where we left off two weeks ago, and just a few words of reminder of kind of what's going on here, because we've kind of flipped the page a little bit in Revelation. What I mean by that is this. Um, we have recently gone through the, the seven uh, seal judgments and the seven trumpet judgments. And these are, again, cycles of looking at the exact same period of time, the time from Christ's ascension until his return, and the various emphases on what Christ is doing upon a world that lives in rebellion to him. And so we've, we've gone through these the seven cycle uh, seals and the seven cycles of trumpets. And, and, and from a, a human perspective, we've seen God's judgment, Christ's judgment upon the world that we see day in and day out all around us because we continue to reject Jesus as king. Now we get to chapter 12. We closed out the seven trumpets with, again, final judgment. We're going to come back and we're going to go back through them one more time with the bold judgments. But we come to chapter 12 and there's kind of a little bit of, I'll just use the word interlude. And what's happening here, we're looking at the exact same period of time that we've been looking at through all of Revelation since Christ's ascension until his return. We've been looking at it from an earthly perspective. We've been looking at it from what, what people on the earth experience because of their rebellion. Now in chapters 12 and 13 and, and, and moving forward, we're just flipping it, looking at the same period of time. The trumpet and seal judgments are going on, but it's showing us behind the scenes kind of the root cause. Why is a world in rejection and rebellion to Jesus? Why are, is, is the king having to pour out these judgments upon the world? What is going on under the hood, if you will, behind the scenes? And that's what chapters 12 and 13 have been. Kind of show, we're not looking at anything different. We're just looking at it from a different perspective. We're kind of looking at it from a, a heavenly view, if you will. The behind-the-scenes root cause of everything that we see going on. So we want to keep in mind that we're looking at still present-day things. We're just looking at what's going on to cause it. And one of the things we were introduced to in chapter 12 is that the cause of all this is this ongoing war between the dragon and the child. And we saw in chapter 12, who's the dragon? Well, it's the serpent from chapter uh, Genesis chapter 3. The serpent who's grown to maturity. The serpent who hates God, who rejects God, who hates his Messiah. And the promise of, of tension, of hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman that we see all throughout the Old Testament, is coming to full circle. Here in the book of Revelation, here in this time between until Jesus returns, this battle is still raging on. All the way back in Genesis 3, when Satan entered the Garden of Eden and tempted God's own image bearers to do what? To compromise. God had said, do this, don't do this. Satan comes in and tempts them to what? Compromise. To disobey. To reject God's authority. And the, the uh, result was that, was that God promised justice 
upon that serpent in the form of a child who would come and crush the head of the serpent and destroy him forever. Now we come to chapter 12 and we see that that's still going on. It's, it, we've been seeing it go on, the, the battle between the serpent and the child. We saw it in the Old Testament as the serpent does everything in his power to keep the child from coming, to destroy the family line of Eve. Think back to when Cain killed Abel. Cain was seed of the serpent. Abel was seed of the woman. When Cain killed Abel, the thought is that ends it. The Messiah cannot come. That line is dead. <laughs> God just raises up Seth. You cannot destroy the coming of the Messiah. And we trace that all the way through the book of Genesis. A couple of years ago, we went through. And, and you may remember so much of the time I was highlighting, keep these two lines and we see them. Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, Abraham and all the enemies, Abraham's children and all the enemies. And we could carry that through, through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, go all the way through. The efforts of the Egyptians to... To, to destroy the people of God. That was the, the seed of the serpent trying to eradicate the people of God, to keep the Messiah from coming. The story of David and Goliath is the story of, of Goliath, of the serpent trying to destroy the seed of the woman. We know that the seed came from David's own line. For that matter, all of the, the works of David's enemies, friends and foes who tried to destroy him, let's Behind the scenes, that's the seed of the serpent just trying to destroy the family line so that the Messiah never comes. Because if he comes, he will crush the head of the serpent. The exile was the seed of the serpent seeking to destroy the people of God. And even when Christ the Messiah is born, Herod has all children two years old killed. It's not just a neat story, it is again further evidence the serpent is trying to destroy this child. And even when Christ grows to full maturity, even in the wilderness when he's tempted by Satan, what's going on there? Satan actually offers the Messiah, you can have all the kingdoms. Jump off this, I'll give it to you all. What's he trying to do there? Just don't go to the cross. Why? The cross is where he kills the serpent. When he dies on the cross and raises from the dead, that is the crushing of the head of the serpent. He's doing everything in his power to keep Christ from being born and then ultimately going to the cross where his defeat will take place. We've been witnesses to this battle between the dragon and the child in chapter 12 all throughout the Bible. If we, God gives us eyes to see the story. But we're not only witnesses, we're also participants. And that's the burden of chapter 13, chapter 12 and 13. We are also participants in this ongoing battle because chapter 12 told us that though the dragon sought to, you remember that vivid image, right? The pregnant woman in birth pains and the dragon opened jaws ready to clamp down upon the child? Didn't succeed. God saved the Messiah, actually overcame Satan at the, the cross, Satan was thrown out of heaven, and now his stomping ground is down here. Down here where we live and where we play. And in chapter 12, verse 13, the dragon, knowing that with the death and resurrection of Christ, he has no chance whatsoever to defeat Christ. He's lost. He's a dying foe. He's just not gone yet. So chapter 12, 13 says he's turned his attention to the child's mother, the people of God, the church. That's where we are participants now 
in this ongoing battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. His focus now is on destroying Christ's church, turning hearts away from Christ, robbing that king of his glory. If he can turn us away from Christ, that's a joy for him. Now, Satan knows his limitations. Satan knows the obstacles he faces. In chapters 12, verses 13 through 16, remember, he sent the flood out to to just sweep away the people of God, and what did God do? He just opened up the, the ground and swallowed up the water. He knows his limitations. He knows he can't do this by himself. And so chapter 12 closes with, now he's enlisting the help of two agents. Two agents who will come and help turn hearts away from Christ. Turn hearts away from him. And in chapter 13, two weeks ago, we we talked about the first of these great agents who comes to us. We saw it in verse 1 of chapter 13. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne in great authority. And just to draw back to your memory, what, what John is doing there is he's go, going back to Daniel chapter 7. The imagery he uses is the exact imagery we see in Daniel chapter 7, where there Daniel is prophesying about coming empires that are going to come and try to take down God's people. And he names them. These are coming empires over the next few centuries that are going to come and try to wipe out God's people. And here John is doing the exact same thing. He's he's teaching the church. He's opening our eyes to the reality just as it was in Daniel's day as he's prophesying these things. So too, Satan is enlisting the help of empires, political powers, other nations to turn us away from Christ. And we saw this in the seven churches, in the letters to the seven churches. Remember, the Roman Empire is highly influential as these seven churches are are, are seeking to live unto Christ. Christ charges some of them that their hearts have grown cold toward Christ. What does that mean? It means the serpent is having an effect. The agent that he's enlisted is having an effect. The Roman Empire had come in. The Roman Empire had said, I don't care if you worship Jesus, but you must worship Caesar. You must pay your taxes. You must be faithful. They created an alternative religion, if you will, a polytheism, that you had to worship many things. Failure to obey would be catastrophic. You'd die. You lose your, your job, any number of different things. And the same thing happens today. This agent of political power is still at work, turning hearts away from Jesus. And we talked about this two weeks ago. Our hope is not politics. Our hope is Christ. Only he can fix us. Only he can do what we most long for in our lives. But there is a second agent. The first one is political power to turn our hearts away from Christ. There is a second agent, and this one is far more dangerous, I believe, for you and I. It is a far more subtle and a far more dangerous enemy to you and I that Satan is successfully using to turn hearts away from Christ. Let's look at it together. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast. This is the second agent here. Another beast rising out of the earth. 
It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom. Let one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do come to you this day once again. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for how it teaches us the glories of our king. It teaches us of his rule and his reign over all things, his sovereignty over things. And we thank you that he's a king who still speaks to us today from on high that he loves us enough, that he, he wants to warn us about the ongoing tactics of the enemy and, and, and the works of the enemy in and around Christ's own church to try to turn us away from him. So, Father, we pray today you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the dangerous situation, Father, that we all live in. And we thank you and we praise you that even though we need to be aware of the danger, Lord, we don't have to fear it. We do thank you that, that we don't have to be paralyzed by what we read this morning. That you have made provision for everything that we need to battle this agent of Satan in Jesus Christ. So Father, help our unbelief. Strengthen our faith. Help us to cling to the promises that are given to us, even in this text, for how to conquer this agent of evil that's all around us. And that may, maybe even this morning, is at work in our hearts. Oh, Father, grant us grace. Send your spirit to show us where we are prey of this agent's work, that today we may repent and return to our king. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Again, Revelation's all about Christ. And as we look at this passage together, I want to begin this way. As we look at this particular agent, I don't want to approach it or come across as though I'm approaching it from above. That I'm, I'm the guy who's, I've got this figured out, I've mastered this, and now I'm, I'm, I'm helping you poor people to, to understand what, what I've got. That's, as I was working on it even last night, I was thinking there's inevitably someone who will take it or, you know, I won't communicate it right or it will come across as though I'm talking down. I'm speaking to this particular danger from within, from with you, all right? Um, I'm every bit the prey here as you and our brothers and sisters in Christ are around the world. I don't want to give the impression this morning that I've got this mastered, uh, for I don't. I'm not a, 
I'm an imperfect husband, I'm an imperfect father, I'm an imperfect uh, man, imperfect pastor, imperfect son, imperfect, I'm a sinner saved by grace. But you don't have to be perfect to understand that there is an ongoing crisis of sorts in Christianity today. There is a crisis. And I'm speaking from within, not from a guy who's throwing stones at Christianity from above, but from within. I'm part of the problem. But there is a a crisis in Christianity today. Throughout church history, the defining characteristic of a Christian has always been captivation with Christ. That has always been the case. The great mark of the true Christian has always been adoration for Christ. Here, not here, not here, here, from the heart. Peter wrote of the elect exiles in in, in 1 Peter, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you love him with joy that is inexpressible and full of joy. That's the defining characteristic and mark of the elect exiles that Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter writes to in 1 Peter 1. You love him. You've heard me quote this before, Thomas Vincent, and some of you have gone through the book with us, The True Christian's Love for the Unseen Christ. Vincent writes, the life of Christianity consists very much in our love to Christ. Without this love for Christ, we are as much without spiritual life as a carcass when the soul is fled from it without natural life. Without love for Christ, we may call ourselves Christians, but we are not. We may gather together and have the form of true religion, meaning we gather together for church and we sing and we pray and we do all this, but if we don't have love for Christ, we do not have the power. So what is the crisis? If that has always been the true defining mark of a true Christian, I think the crisis today is we have drifted from that. From that understanding of Christianity is an absolute captivation, mesmerized, just all-consuming love for Jesus Christ. The fact of the matter is, today, there are people who profess to be Christians And they will gather together in religious circles much like we are. But they don't want to hear sermons about Jesus. They don't want to hear another sermon about Jesus. They want to hear something about how, listen, I got my problems. I want to hear something more practical about how it can fix me. Speaks to how little we understand Christ. They will gather together and want, listen, okay, fine, Jesus, but plus something else. There will be people who will gather together and talk about, oh, I had a good quiet time this week. I did it every single day. How did your affections for Jesus grow? I don't know. They didn't. I I read read the chapter. I read the verse. I did what I was supposed to do. I prayed. Well, talk about your your fellowship with King Jesus in those moments. They can't speak to it. They'll desire to come to church to be entertained. They'll expect church to be about what they value most. They'll be critical of those who don't do things the way they want to. They'll be interested in Jesus only to the degree that he's useful to me. There'll be people who will be bored if they sit in a church where Jesus is... I would communicate. All of these, these things speak to a crisis in Christianity today. And if we're honest, we have to admit 
that even in our own souls here at Covenant Life, much of what we might think of Christianity is not characterized by this preoccupation with Jesus, with his glory. In fact, we may have to quietly confess that we ourselves, I mean, I hear what you're saying, Jake, but I don't find him glorious. I don't find him his splendor that magnificent. And if that's the case, it's not unprecedented. We saw the, this was the help of the seven letters to the seven churches. Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, what, you've lost your first love. I see you're gathering together as a church, you're singing, you're great, you're present, but I'm looking at the heart and I see you've lost your first love, your love for Christ. And that's a crisis. And the longer Christians and professing Christians live in this period of disinterest in Christ or interest in Christ only to the point that he fixes something going on in me, well, then it speaks to there might be a deeper problem than just we've drifted from Christ. It might be we've never known Christ whatsoever. And that is a crisis of Christianity. As we engage this passage together in verses 11 through 18, so full of mystery, so full of mystique, I have no doubt, just like I did, uh, we got the mark of the beast here, we got 666, let's get to that. We will. And I think Satan would love for us to make it something it's not, so as we never get to the point and undermine the tactic, undermine what this is about and how he is using this agent to turn us away from Jesus. This text is not for some future Christians just prior to the return of Jesus Christ. It was for the seven churches. It was for every Christian in every age, in every circumstance, and it is for you and I this morning as we acknowledge the reality of a crisis in Christianity today. The Christian life has always been love for Jesus. Always. And the Christian life can be summarized as a daily battle against Satan to keep our preoccupation with Christ, who he is, what he's done. A daily battle to keep that. Satan is completely fine to let us, hey, be religious, have your quiet time, gather together, do this, that, and the other, good things, just never get to Jesus. Never see him as the all-glorious, all-satisfying, beautiful, glorious, all-sufficient, all-knowing, creator of all things, sustainer of all things, king enthroned on high, who will rule forever. Never, ever get to that place to where you'll sell off everything else because you must have him. And that's the work of this particular agent we're reading about here. To keep us on, hey, I don't care if Jesus is in the picture. Just never get to this understanding of him. And that's why I said a moment ago, I think this is the most dangerous of the agents, of Satan's agents for the church today. Because it is so deceptive. It is so deceptive in the tactic it uses to turn our hearts from a preoccupation with Jesus. It is so subtle. Look at what I mean. Look at verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, 
It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So the, the first beast came out of the, the water. We talked about that two weeks ago, the significance, the symbolism of that, what water. This one comes out of the land. But what I want to draw your attention to is what does this one look like? And specifically, we know the other one had ten horns. How many horns does this one have? Two horns. The text tells us what does this beast look like? It looks like a lamb. A lamb with two little horns. It's not this ogre beast like we saw symbolized in, in verse 1, this other beast, ten horns, right? the body that had all these different, I mean, you're going to recognize, this looks like a lamb. What's the point here? This agent of Satan, in his daily war against you and I, this tactic is to use an agent, it looks like the lamb. In Revelation, we've already seen who the lamb is. It is Jesus Christ, the lamb slain. This one is a counterfeit lamb. This is one, it's not the true lamb, but it looks like a lamb. It's a counterfeit one. And if we are not so very careful, Satan will subtly turn our preoccupation away from the lamb who was slain to this lamb. Because this lamb is going to speak to, not to Christ, but to me, where I am, what I want. A me-centered religion, if you will. You think about a lamb. Yeah, no one's afraid of a lamb. I think that's part of the imagery we see in the Bible. No one looks at a lamb and thinks of a dragon. Nobody looks at a lamb and thinks, that thing is dangerous, I'm out of here. Why didn't somebody fence that thing in, right? Nobody looks at a lamb and thinks those things. Yet this beast, who is an agent of Satan seeking to, chapter 12, verse 17, come and destroy Christ's church to turn us away from Christ, and he sends him in the form of a, a gentle lamb. Nobody's going to be intimidated by it. And that's how this agent earns our trust, gets access to our hearts. And once he grips our hearts, can begin to subtly turn us away. But there is one huge difference about this lamb. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like what? A dragon. What's the dragon? Go back to chapter 12. It's identified for it. It's Satan. This lamb gives the appearance of wooing us in. It's a counterfeit, but it woos us in. And what it woos us into is the authority of the dragon the full authority of Satan. And Satan's speech, we know, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, is deceptive, it's trickery, it's destructive, it's strategic. How did he get Adam and Eve to compromise God through his, his words? Did God really say this? Is God really what you think he is? God is holding back from you and in their me-centeredness of their heart began to turn away from God to this other thing. The beast, the dragon, is a master of deception. We have to know that. So let me kind of step back. Practically speaking, how are we to understand this beast? Is it a literal beast? No. Is it one person? No. 
It's an ongoing spirit of the reality that was true in the seven churches. It was true in the church of Jesus Christ in every age, and it's true for us today. I think it's clear what this lamb who speaks like a dragon represents is the deceitful power of false religion. The deceitful power of false religion. And let me clarify that even more, because yes, I would throw into that, you know, things like uh, the false religions of Islam and Buddhism and, and some of the cult religions like Mormonism and Jehovah. Yes, all that's included. But Satan is far too cunning. I pray our hearts are not going to be turned by Buddhist ideology. So also in that bag is not just these world religions and counterfeit cults, but also a counterfeit form of Christianity. A counterfeit Christianity that looks like Christianity. It feels like Christianity. We gather together for church, and it feels religious. It feels right, but it's not. It's not true religion. It's not true Christianity. And it's exactly what Jesus warned us in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says, for false uh, Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and great wonders so as to lead away, even if possible, the elect. Let me read that again. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Jesus warned that. False Christs and false prophets will arise. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. You can check that mark. Here's one. He looks like Christ, a false Christ who comes looking like a lamb. Matthew 24 says, he will perform great signs and wonders. Skip down to verse 13. This beast that looks like a lamb that speaks like a dragon, verse 13, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Obviously, that's taken from Elijah's life, right? The Old Testament story of Elijah. That literally happened in Elijah's day. But here, that event is used to symbolize this false religion, this false prophet. He's later going to be, this, this beast will be called the false prophet in, in future chapters, will appear with great power and will appear to speak on behalf of God. And it will look right. But it's not true Christianity. And then Jesus' final warning there was, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, which is chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Her, the church. That's exactly what Jesus warned us about. Jesus warned us, Paul warned us, the, the Ephesian elders, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. They're going to speak things, they're, they're going to take the truth and twist it subtly. And if you're not wise, if you're not mindful, if you're not seeking things above, if your heart is not entrenched with Jesus, how do you recognize a counterfeit? You've got to know the original. Here, not here, here. You've got to know it. You've got to feel it. If you don't know true religion, true Christ, the twisted form will draw you away. Paul spoke to the Galatian church who had bewitched them in their understanding of grace of God through Jesus Christ. It had happened to the church in Galatia. 
this agent of the, of, of the beast, of Satan here, had had full effect there in the church at Galatia. Paul told Timothy, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And then John, same John here in Revelation, told in his first epistle, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Make sure. Because there are counterfeit truths, counterfeit Christianity that looks and smells and feels so good, so religious. It's kind of a, a mixing and mingling, the best of all possibilities. And I draw out those Old Testament texts to say, what this crisis that, I, that we see in Christianity today is nothing new. When I say there's a, Christian, a crisis in Christianity today, I don't mean that it's never been there. It's always been a crisis as long as Satan and his agents of turning hearts away from Jesus Christ are, excuse me, at work. It's always been in place. And here, John is describing for us this dangerous tactic of turning hearts away from Christ using a counterfeit religion, a counterfeit Christianity, a counterfeit Christ. It was just a couple of weeks ago. This is an extreme example, but just, just a couple of weeks ago, Jamie and I were, were driving somewhere, and we were just talking about uh, the, the sermon I'd preached that morning, and she shared with me about, in one of her social media circles, an acquaintance who had put out just that week a question. I'm looking for a church to attend, but here's, here's my parameters. Here's, here's what it has to be for me. I want a, a good Jesus-loving church that respects Buddhist ideology. I'm sitting there, and again, not from above, from within. That's not going to tempt me, Buddhist ideology. I have the other things that will tempt me. But I, I think, please tell me that there's a bunch of people just, just kindly and compassionately correcting her. And as she was reading me some of the responses, they were actually reinforcing her idea. Oh, at my church, we, man, it's a great church. We worship Jesus, and we are very respectful of this lifestyle and this and that and the other and this ideology and Buddhist ideology and different things. And they actually believe that is indeed Christian. Now, obviously, one of two things is happening there. Number one, either they have no understanding of biblical Christianity whatsoever, and that, that may be the reality. Or two, they are completely deceived. They are completely deceived, which is exactly one of the tactics of Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us, Paul writes in this passage, chapter 4, verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, from seeing Christ for who he is, his all-sufficient, glorious, he is all thing. Satan is blinding people from seeing the manifestation of God in Jesus Christ. And one of his tactics to do so is, hey, you can be religious. Go to your churches, 
but never, ever get to focusing upon the centrality of Jesus Christ. Go to your churches, talk about any other thing. Talk about Buddhist ideology. Talk about the, the, the connection between Christianity and Buddhism or, or fill in the blank. I'm just using that in keeping with the example. Get together and just talk theology. Get together and, and talk about the cross, talk about eternal life, talk about salvation, talk about prayer, talk about evangelism and discipleship, talk about church planning, talk about this, that, and the other. And again, when I'm saying that, please don't hear me saying you shouldn't talk about those things. Those things are the overflow. Satan is fine to let us continue to to preach so long as we never get to the center of what the Bible is all about. It's about a person. And that person's not me. The person is Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all been about Christ. But it is possible to gather together in religious, religious circles and have emphasis in all these good areas and never get to Jesus Christ. You can have a salvation that's me-centered. It's not about Christ. It's not about his glory. You can have prayer. That's not about, we, we gather together to turn our hearts to Christ. You can have a prayer meeting that's about, it's about me, my needs, my wants. You can have um, church planning that's about, you know, not, not the glory of Christ, but it's about success. It's about uh, building a, 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 a large church and through marketing and, and doing all kinds of good things. Things that will woo people and draw people in. Satan is fine to let church people be church people and feel religious and feel Christian while in their hearts there is no preoccupation with Christ whatsoever. And this is the reality we have to be aware of. And the question I have to ask of me and you have to ask of you, how is it between your soul and Christ this morning? Is Christ mesmerizing, captivating to you? Or is Christ uninteresting, unattractive, dull to you this morning? Might it be that this agent of Satan is at work in your life and in your heart to turn hearts ever so subtly away from the centrality of Jesus Christ? That's what he tells us about the, notice what he tells us about the purpose of this beast in verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. It works in conjunction with the first beast. The first beast was what? Political persuasion, political power, political influence to turn our hearts away from Jesus. We need the government to help us, well, to fix our problems. We need politicians, not Jesus. And then you have this, these false religions come in, kind of working in correlation with that. Turn hearts away from Jesus. We saw this in the seven churches. That was the reason they were there, to show us this is happening. This is a reality in their own life. And likewise today, there are political and religious systems of the world telling us not just turn away from Jesus. That's, that's not going to work. Christians will up, uproar against that. But they'll say things like this. Christians need to coexist. Christians need to listen to the other side. Christians need to work together. Christians need to be accepting. So this particular agent of Satan comes in and says to the church, to you and I, oh, you know, I'm not asking you to give up your religion. I'm not asking you to, to give up Jesus. 
I'm just simply saying, listen to what the state is saying. Or, I'm not asking you to give up Jesus, but wouldn't you admit it would at least be beneficial to listen to what your culture is saying to you? What the culture is exposing to you? Or, I'm not telling you to give up Jesus, but wouldn't life be a little bit more lucrative if you listen to your boss and what he's telling you to do and how he's telling you to do it? Or, wouldn't we all get along better if you just listen to your neighbor? You don't have to give up Jesus. Go to church. I don't, I'm not telling you not to worship Jesus. Kind of like the Roman Empire, right? I don't care if you worship Jesus. But also, maybe if you listen to your neighbors more. Just listen to their thoughts. Maybe you're not so different after all. Or, I know your family's not devoted to Jesus. I know your family doesn't love Jesus. And, but man, wouldn't it keep the peace in your family if you just listen to what your family, maybe be a little bit sensitive to them and what they're going through. I'm not asking you to quit loving Jesus. Just, just you know, kind of find room for their family's way of thinking and their family's way of doing things. You see, all of these are examples of ways of a false religion. It's not saying forsake Jesus. It's just simply saying make room with Jesus for the world, for the culture, for your, your unconverted family, for your business practice. You know, do what's best for you. Make room for that. And it's a counterfeit message. It's a message of compromise. It's a message that the world is saying, there are areas you, 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 can't, you don't need to be so rigid. There's more than just Jesus, more than the Christian faith. For the good of society as a whole, work together. And this is where the second beast is far more dangerous to us than the first, because even as I'm saying some of that, I have no doubt some of you are probably even sitting there thinking, well, I, don't, I don't see any problem with that. You see, the beast, this particular agent, looks like a Christian. It uses Bible language. It doesn't say to forsake Jesus. It just simply says, make room for Jesus plus. It just simply says, your life will be more reasonable. Your life will be more happy. If you would just be willing to make small compromises and you'll have the happy life you deserve. If the church would just make a few small concessions, a few small compromises, man, you'd have people coming in the doors. You'd have so many people there, you'd have to buy more seats. It's a betrayal of the sufficiency of our king. Our master who says, you can't serve two masters simultaneously. You can't serve me and the world. You can't serve me and your boss. You can't serve me and your unconverted family. You can't serve me and, 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 and the political arena. You can't do it, thus saith the Lord. So, how does this agent work? How does he go about accomplishing, of turning our hearts from a preoccupation with Jesus, love for Jesus, captivated by Jesus, to possibly making room in our hearts for Jesus plus. It might surprise you. That's what verses 16 through 18 are. Also, it, it what? It is the beast here. 
false religion, counterfeit Christianity, it was allowed, excuse me, verse 16, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. Now we get to probably what? (laughs) What you came for. What is this? What's going on here? The prevailing belief, probably the belief of many of you, and what I held for the longest time, is that this mark of the beast is a literal tattoo, stamp, in our day-to-day microchip, some kind of imprint of sort, which visually, externally identifies the follower of this beast. That's kind of how, growing up in youth group, all the, 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 the wonderful in-day uh, videos we used to watch, you know, it was a stamp, a microchip, and, and the books we've read. The popular notion among many Christians is that this type of stamp or imprint or tattoo or microchip or whatever the case may be will be forced upon somebody such that you can't even buy supplies unless you have this. Obviously, we see where that would be, the literal reading of that. But that's not contextually what's happening here. I think more biblically, the way of understanding this is seeing verses 16 through 18 in the context of what's happening here. So what is happening here? Ever since chapter 12, this vision has been exposing how the dragon is seeking to mimic God. He's just mimicking God every step. And it's part of this measure to create a counterfeit Christianity that woos us away from him. So for instance, John has been making the point that the dragon, chapter 12, the first beast out of the water, chapter 13, and now this beast constitutes a counterfeit trinity. You have right there the the dragon and the two beasts who are seeking the worship of the nations to pull the worship of the people of God, the triune God, away from him to a a new counterfeit trinity. I mean, it's very clear here there's a, a counterfeit trinity that's on display here. Also, we saw this two weeks ago that even as Jesus died and rose again, right, from the dead, the, be- the first beast is portrayed as having a mortal wound that he heals from. That's the thing about mortal wounds. You don't heal from them. A mortal wound, by definition, is you die. But here, it's very clear, he recovers from it. What's this? He's mimicking Christ. So you have a, a counterfeit trinity. You have a counterfeit Christ here on display here. And then, just to, again, to just drive home, what the dragon is doing here is mimicking the Godhead. You have... This beast who looks like a lamb. You can't miss every step of the way. Everything is a mimicking of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that being said, I don't think that the mark of the beast here is a literal physical mark on the body of unbelievers, a stamp on their forehead or a stamp on their hand. But rather, it's a mimicking of what God has already done. Where have we seen in Revelation God marks his people? The seal. Go back to chapter 6 and 7. Final judgment in the seal judgments. Who can stand? You remember the interlude? Well, only the church. Those who are sealed, stamped, marked by the blood of Jesus Christ. Only they can stand. Then fast forward 
to the trumpet judgments. Remember the, the measuring of the court? I want you to measure just the inner circle, not the outer court, just the, because these are the marked ones. These are the guarded ones. These are the protected ones. These are the sealed ones. These are the true believers. And the mark that we have here of the beast is nothing more than a mimicking of what we've already seen here. He's mimicked the Trinity. He's mimicking uh, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's mimicking Christ. And here he's mimicking the sealing, the marking of the people of God. I don't think there's any reason to think that this is an external, actual tattoo any more than the seal of God upon his church is an actual seal. We're sealed by the blood of Christ. That's an inner, new covenant reality. And likewise, this mark of the beast is an inner reality. Here's what Satan would love. For us to continue on looking for some external mark of the beast that we will not partake of. Meanwhile, our hearts are being subtly, subtly, slowly turned away from our king, from our counterfeit religion. This mark of the beast is an inner mark, an internal mark, just like the, the marking of the, the sealing of God's people. And notice the text says, it affects two great areas of your life, your head and your hands. What is this mark? It's the mark of compromise. It's the mark of, of rebellion. It's the mark of betrayal of Christ. Upon your head, your mind, and your hand, your actions. And this does, in no way violates anything we've been looking at in Revelation. In fact, it's in keeping with how we've interpreted the symbolism of the, of the text. This is absolutely in keeping with it. The mark is an internal mark of a heart that may even with its lips talk about love for Jesus, but in its heart, in its thinking. And in its actions, has begun to compromise love for Jesus. And why the number 666? It plays right into the strategy. Numerology and revelation is huge, we know. We want to be careful with it. I've tried in every instance to show, to be very just faithful to. Here's biblical reason why. Seven, we know, is the number of completeness, fullness. It's the number of deity. It's the number of the Godhead. It's the number of Christ. We've seen this over and over, even to this point in the book of Revelation. Six is the number of man. How do I know that? Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let one who understands calculate the number of the beast for the number of a man. And his number is 666. This is the number of man. What's the difference? Six falls short of seven, all right? I don't mean to be, it's just the reality that we don't think six falls short of seven. We were created for seven. We were created, go back to our catechism question, why and how did God create us? God created us male and female in his image to glorify him because he is seven, deity, he is fullness, he is complete glory and beauty and majesty. Six, we fall short. We were created for seven to be the center of our universe and for all of our lives to orbit seven. Are you staying with me? Six is the number of man. And the mark of the beast, six, 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 is when a man takes seven from that place of centrality, that God in that place of centrality, 
love for Christ in that place of centrality and puts man right in the center. Puts man in the center. And then all of his thoughts and all of his actions, the mark of the beast on the, the, the forehead and the hands, his thinking and his actions, now all of a sudden begin to orbit him or her. You can write across your thinking, man-centered. You can write on your hand and your actions, man-centered. You can put on your church sign, we gather together, but we'll throw Jesus in there, but it's really all about us and what we want and what we know you want. It's living as though man is the center. And Jesus is out there somewhere orbiting with all the other things, you. Here's the strategy. When life orbits me, God is on the fringes, or at worst, forgotten. I asked a question in our catechism question earlier, and this is for the adults. In a given day, how many times do you think about God? How many times does it come up? And again, not, not that we're sitting back you know, putting tally marks in the day. But we know what it is to have a mind consumed by something, and then when something is on the fringes, oh yeah, I forgot, I need to throw this in. I need to do this, I need to do that. When 666 is at the center of our lives, the mark of the beast, we are the central. God in Christ is forgotten, or he's on the fringes. Isn't that what Satan's all about? He hates Christ's rule, his reign. He just wants to turn our affections away from a preoccupation with Christ to, hey, the most logical thing, a preoccupation with us, with self, to drive our actions and to drive our thinking. So, Christian, what does God want for your marriage? Well, I know the right answer is this. He wants me as a husband to love my wife with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, just as I love him in, 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 in reflection of Christ. And wife, he wants me to submit. But what I want... And what I'm going to do this week, who's at the center there? Uh, Christian, what does God want for your children? Well, I know he wants me to invest in them and point them to Jesus and raise them up. But what I'm going to do this week, I got a busy week. I got a lot going on. Listen, I'm, I'm preaching this not from above, from within. Who's at the center there? Uh, what does God want in his church? Well, he, he wants the adoration of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, the expository preaching of Christ in every book of the Bible. But what I want is something else. Who's at the center there? What does God want in your business? He wants honesty, integrity, faithfulness. But I have needs, and so what I want, what I'm going to do is, and Jesus is on the fringes. Do you see how looking for some external mark of the beast, while clever, plays right into Satan's hands? Because this morning, our hearts might be stamped with the mark, and we're not even wrestling with it. The crisis is that Christianity has always been a preoccupation with Jesus, and yet we live in a day where for many professing Christians, Jesus is at best on the fringes and at worst, a forgotten commodity. And that's not true Christianity. That person can go to church, that person can have a quiet time, that person can do this, that, and the other, but in their heart, in their soul, an adoration for Jesus, 
That is the determining factor. Christians, professing Christians can be in church right now, yet have written all over their thought life, all over their decisions, it's all about me. They can have, be in church right now and praising God and yet have written all over their checkbook, it's all about me. They, they can be at church right now and yet over their families, it says, it's all about me. And this is the work of the agent of Satan to turn hearts subtly away from a preoccupation with Jesus to putting Jesus on the fringes. If in a moment of weakness, he can put me at the center. My, my life be marked by the mark of the beast that it's all about me. So as it's not about Jesus. And do you see, he looks like a lamb. Be religious. Have your quiet time. Be whatever. But right here, can you honestly say, there's a heart for Jesus. So what do we do? Well, the answer is exactly what he said to the seven churches when they were compromising love for Jesus. Repent. Repentance is more than words. It's person-oriented. Repent because we have turned from the glory and the greatness of the king, and person-oriented, we return to him. God, I confess, I've become me-centered. I've become so selfish. So I'm, I'm preaching from within. I'm right there with you. I become so selfish and self-centered. It's all about me, my wants, my desires. And man, I'm so critical of anyone who doesn't do it my way. And, and, and I'm always angry and I'm always frustrated. And it's always, confess. My soul is marked by the mark of the beast. But it doesn't have to stay that way. Repent, return to your king. Put the 777, if you will. Be marked by that. Ask for grace to help you. This text is not so that we fear this agent or that we feel paralyzed by it, but so that we're aware that we would be exposed. And the great weapon of this warfare is Christ. Go back to chapter 12. How did the, the woman, or excuse me, how, how did she conquer the, uh, the, the beast in chapter 12? With the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is everything we need to return to our king. No matter how far gone, no matter how me-centered you've been, or how long you've been me-centered. Maybe you've never been a professing Christian, and your whole life is consumed by me, 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 me. And yet today, why did God create you in his image, male and female, to glorify him? Today's a day to repent, and through the blood of Jesus Christ, return to him. Where there's me-centeredness in our life this morning, the reality is, the victory, the conquering, the protecting is through Jesus Christ. We don't have time to go back through it. We did look at it two weeks ago. The, he says that the names of his people are written in the Lamb's Book of Life from before the foundation of the world. That's in chapter 13 in the section we looked at two weeks ago. It's written before the foundation of the world. Your name is in there if you are a true believer. If you've received that new covenant heart, you will hear this message. Or, and it will have its convicting intent, and your heart will turn back to the king. We don't have to fear this mark. We just need to be aware and to pray for grace to return to, to him and to live by faith. My hope is not in the wisdom of politics. My hope is not in religion. My hope is not in the culture. My hope is not in family. All these things, my hope, is in Jesus Christ alone.
He is sufficient. He is all-glorious. He is the all-consuming everything, all in all. Is he the preoccupation of your heart?